0: Yeah, on. Two Twins. Hello. 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 Hello, Hello, V Gates. Hello, V Gates, nubs. You got to say it right. Hello. You're not answering, you're not answering the question properly. Hello, V gates.
1: God, I wish I could say it in German. I wish I could say. You're supposed to say, say,
0: gut, gut. Because I'm saying, hello, how are you? And you say, gut, gut. Well, welcome to Two Twins in an Album. We certainly hope this is a gut episode today. Um, Are we doing the episode in English or in German? I think we better do it in English because I just gave you all the German that I know. <laughs> Although I must say, I think I know how to count to 10. Um, eins, zwei, drei, vier, futset sieben, acht, neun, ze, uh, was it Zen or something? Zen, Zen. And the I, only reason I know that is because we had in our high school, we had only French or German. We didn't even have Spanish. It was kind of weird so you were kind of one or the other. Now I was a French guy. I, I, you know, I did, I did a lot of Frenching during those years, but, and I actually, I actually studied abroad in France. So I know French pretty well. The extent of my German is what my buddies who went the German track taught me, which was pretty much what you just heard, uh, counting to 10, which I'm actually shocked. I still remembered how to do. I don't use my German a lot, you know,
1: I think, uh, I don't you've never been to Germany, have you?
0: I haven't. I've always wanted to go. You have now, correct?
1: Yeah. We did a 12-day trip there in 2017, which right now, you know, during the pandemic, you're like cherishing every international trip you ever took, you know. It's <laughs> like are we ever going to get to do this again? But it was sort of a, you know, I I don't know. I think it's it's a little weird when everyone talks about like their life goals and, oh, I, you know, I want to do this and I travel here, but it was definitely a thing where going to Germany was a really important check the box, right? You travel there and you just never get sick of hearing the German language. Ah, yeah. You know, it's just such a, just phonetically, it's such a Interesting language to listen to. Even when uh, people in Germany speak English, it just sounds cool. You know, yeah. it's got that little accent to it. But uh, you know, What's, what cities were you in? So it was, it was a pretty cool trip, actually. the The, the funniest part of the trip to is the, the group was Mrs. Nubbs, me, and my father in law, and that's <laughs> just the just the
0: three of you. Yes,
1: yes, that's it. That was the, that was the crew. And my father-in-law is this amazing dude, you know, he's just super lovable. And he actually was stationed in Germany when he was in the service. And so going back there, he's been back frequently, but he loves Germany. I mean, it's like his, you know, it's like his second home, right? Mm-hmm. And so he really knows the area, and so he put together this like perfect trip. We started in Munich, and we spent a few days there. And then Salzburg, Austria is literally like on the edge of of Germany. And so we did like a two hour drive there and Salzburg is our insanely
0: cool city. Sounds uh, a little bit like the Griswolds.
1: Yeah, so, it's, it's definitely a little bit Griswold. It's like European vacation minus, uh, you know,
0: Audrian. And underrated, by the way, European vacation. Oh, I, mean, I, think, I think it's the best of the lot. Personally. Do you? Yeah, I, I think it's really good. <laughs> I love it. So then we did Salzburg,
1: Austria, which, you know, birthplace of Mozart and all that history. And then we flew from Salzburg to Berlin and we did four days. There. And that was the holy grail for me. That was, you know, it's like I'm, I'm not going all the way there and not spending significant
0: time in Berlin. And we're glad we did. So, did you say Eke Einen Berliner?
1: Yeah. Also known as uh, I am a donut. I'm a jelly donut. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like the country is as cool as people say it is. You know, a lot of times people travel internationally, they get very impressionable. And oh, it's so amazing. I mean, it is just a ridiculously
0: neat place. Yeah. That's great. And did the, uh, did the Griswolds during this trip by any chance stop at Dusseldorf? We did not go to Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf is in, I
1: think, the northwest part of Germany. And we spent most of our time south, which is Munich, and northeast, which is Berlin, if I have that right.
0: Well, Dusseldorf is the home of Kling Klang Recording Studio. And, and really the whole Kling Klang operation. And that will, uh, that will work into... Tonight's episode, episode 21, where we will discuss the undisputed, undisputed innovators and pioneers of electronic music. I think we can agree there, right? I think in terms of what we know
1: as it today, no doubt about it. If you really go deep, you can find some things that are really unconventional and avant-garde. But yes, in terms of like how to turn electronics into pop music it's craft work all the way
0: well listen nubs few people go as deep as you do i think we can all agree on that let's see how deep you go as we go round and round nubs what you been listening to buckaroo
1: you know, I've got three. Just happen to have three debut albums. The first is a 1970 album called "Electronic Meditation" by Tangerine Dream, certainly known as one of the other pioneers of electronic music. And this is the debut album. It's a lot of noise. It's not the most comfortable listen, but very, very influential. Next would be uh, Can's debut, "Monster Movie," the 1969 effort from the the very original lineup of Can. It sort of introduced the world to you know, this thing that would become known as Krautrock, which is sort of a demeaning term in Germany. You don't want to say that, that term in Germany. I made that mistake. But uh, Monster Movie is a, a classic debut album from Cannes and always interesting to check out whatever they're up to. And next, in reissue, it became known as Cluster 71, but it's actually just called Cluster, the debut album by that electronic duo. Dieter Mobius and Hans Joachim Rodelius and uh, this one also included Connie Plank who's a key figure in the history of German electronic music as well
0: now that's just a shameless theme I mean now now you're not even you're not even trying to disguise your round and round theme anymore
1: no no there's no mask there's no mask on this theme It's it's as explicit as it gets
0: that was right in the face Right in the face.
1: Last week when you said we're doing the man machine, I was like, okay, I'm just going to do a full dive into my German collection here and and make it count.
0: Just going to hit you over the head with it. Nothing wrong with that at all. Um, Nubs, I've got uh, a band that certainly uh, I think I mentioned on Round and Round a few episodes ago that has popped back up heavily on the radar, not just for me, but probably for many with their first studio album in over 20 years. But this is the band Hum. And, you know, their most recent album, Inlet, is incredibly good. And, you know, I knew their other record, which was You'd Prefer an Astronaut pretty well. Downward is Heavenward is one that I really didn't properly, I would say, take the time to dive into and understand. You know, Hum kind of broke up and it was sort of like, all right, well, I guess we'll just all kind of move along together here, but being able to revisit downward as heavenward, which many consider a classic um, within that sort of spacey emo, you know, there's a lot of ways that you could sort of describe the band hum, but downward as heavenward is a very important piece of their very small catalog. And so I've been, I wouldn't say I'm completely dialed into it yet to the point where I have a a really sound take on the thing, but uh, really enjoying revisiting it. And I am starting to get it.
1: It is one of the great one, two punches to open it. It opens with a song called Isle of the Cheetah, which is this sort of epic hum, you know, spacey thing. And then the second track is called coming home. I think it's like two and a half minutes long. It's really short and just a complete jam. Many a night in the late nineties, driving around with coming home, blasting out of, the speakers, so yeah, it, okay. it's a very
0: heralded album for sure. It is, it is, and I'll, it also led to me revisiting a great YouTube piece. Um, Hum went on the Howard Stern show back in what would it, I guess it would have been 94?
1: Well, the 95? album was 95, I don't know what year yeah. that was, but it was right around there, yeah.
0: So, right around the time that Stars was really, and, and my understanding is that K Rock in LA and K Rock in New York. You know, both had a lot to do with the growth of that song and the introduction of that song as a single. And Howard Stern loved it and had the band on. And it was a band that was like not necessarily prepared nor terribly comfortable being on that program, but realized that, you know, he had, you know, 800 million listeners and, uh, and that it would be a great way to get their, uh, get their song out there. But it's a, it's a fun watch. It's like, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of clunky and they had all kinds of technical issues and it's, you know, it's kind of a good thing to revisit. Uh, the second is a a record also from this kind of early nineties time period by Lenny Kravitz. And this is, are you going to go my way? And I think it's, uh, I'm not sure of the exact way to term this, but it's one of the most notable peaking too early records that I can ever think of because are you going to go my way? is just an iconic song from the nineties. And then believe is, uh, is a brilliant, beautiful song. And you get two songs into it and you're like, oh my God, this is going to be the best record ever created. And then it just sucks, you know, (laughs) like there are a couple of good moments. I mean, is there any love in your heart's pretty good? I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it definitely rebounds a little bit, but man, it's one of those records where you get through the first two and you think that you're listening to a classic and then it just sort of doesn't go anywhere. And I recently wanted to listen to it to verify that, and I kind of verified it once again. I must say, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes you revisit those things, and it's like eh, I had that one wrong, but I don't know. I don't know if you agree, but I think I kind of had that one right, actually.
1: I think it's a great call, actually. First of all, Lenny never really mastered the album. <laughs> like, it's true. Even Mama Said was pretty yeah, kind of you know, tailed off the yeah. second. The first half of Mama Said is is like unfairly excellent, and then the second half, it's like. It's just yeah. sounds like a mess. Yeah. So yeah. Are you going to go my way held such promise after those, again, we talked about with the hum album, you know, a one, two punch as good as anything, but yeah, the rest of the, I, I, is there any loving your heart is that's a fantastic song, mm-hmm. but yeah, there, there's nothing else that stands out and it, it, it does sort of get into this groove of like just sort of nostalgic slop, you know, there's just nothing too dynamic in it. Yeah. Aside from that opening and one track later. So yeah, it's a good call actually.
0: Yeah. Well I liked his five album, which was a little bit more electronic. It had some, I mean, again, to your point, top to bottom, it wasn't great, but it, it definitely had some good moments, but flying V, dreadlocks Lenny, um, which we were fortunate enough to be able to see. In fact, he opened the show with, is there any love in your heart, which was great, but we were able to kind of see him during that heyday, which was um, which was great. And then the third is certainly an album that top to bottom is quite good. And that is an album called ferment. And that is by a band called the Catherine wheel. I think I've mentioned them previously during what's in your head, but ferment was the band's first album and it's really incredible. I mean, from the standpoint of kind of this shoegazy spacey style you know, it was a little bit of my Bloody Valentine mixed with a little bit of basic British pop rock. And if you sort of meld those together, um, Catherine Wheel and their heyday were incredible. Their first two albums, you know, I would put those against the first two albums of basically any band. I mean, those are outstanding. Now, after that, of course, they started to mess around a little too much with production and I think tried to get a little too cute, but the raw you know, space shoegaze power of those first two records is, is really special. So if you've yet to check out the Catherine wheel, please do. And certainly if you've yet to check out Kraftwerk, which I think there will be plenty of people tuning into this, that probably haven't, I'd be interested to know who's actually heard of the group versus who has heard some of their stuff versus who really knows their catalog. And, you know, we think it's uh, a very important uh, group to highlight. We will be talking about their album, The Man Machine, today. And certainly looking forward to it. So, why don't we, without any further ado, dig into those nerdy deets? Done, dirt, cheap. Yeah.
1: You want some dirty deets? Yeah.
0: The Man Machine or shall I say Demensch Machine.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. How
0: was my accent? Was it great? Terrible. Hmm. Terrible. Was released on May 19th, 1978. This was Kraftwerk's 7th album on the aforementioned Kling Klang Records which was sort of this, you know, studio and record label of this whole Craftwork operation um, that got built out sort of under the umbrella of EMI where the group originally started and they kind of were able to build almost their own little version of Apple you know where it was sort of designed not just to record uh, but to create and uh, obviously with Kraftwerk's, um experimentation and instrumentation uh, uniqueness when it comes to synthesizers and machines, and and also some some raw instruments, which you started to see less of as the uh, as the group went on. But certainly early on, was still you know using analog instruments was something. Even on the Audubon record, you know, that you uh, heard the band do a lot. So a lot of fun stuff going on over there at Kling Klang.
1: Kling Klang, yeah you're right. It's like Apple except not an unmitigated financial disaster.: <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: You know? They actually
0: sort of made it work, right? Yeah yeah. Um, <laughs> the record was produced by uh, Rolf and Florian from the band. We'll, we'll dig into the uh, I guess the band members, although it's really just two guys that I, I think are primarily the uh, the voice, if you will, of of craftwork, but it was produced by those two guys, the co founders of the group. And you know, I think what what really gets you know respected and renowned about this album and every craftwork, it was very it was quite difficult actually trying to pick what the correct craftwork album to do an episode on is. You know, because every one is sort of unique in its own way. I think what defines the man machine beyond anything else is it was basically the entrance into synth pop. You know, there was a lot of kraut rock happening, like, like we went through in your, you know, round and round. There was disco, you know, certainly electronic music and electronic dance music wasn't a foreign idea at this point, but a true synthesizer only pop effort was kind of not a thing yet, nor was this new wave electropop movement uh, that eventually kind of spawned in many ways from this album. So this post-disco new wave really wasn't a thing. And many people credit this album for, you know, setting that up. It was Craftwork getting to be much less minimalistic and much less sort of, I guess, artsy and avant-garde, if you will, than some of their previous work. Although, you know, there was good variety to their previous work. If you sort of backtrack, Trans Europe Express was the album that preceded The Man Machine, which was very minimalist and, and kind of their first, I would say, foray into melody. You know, you really started to see shorter, more melodic songs more so than more of a crot approach that you had seen in some of their earlier work. It was a pop album, right? And I think the man machine in some ways, uh, although a bit tighter than trains Europe express was is a little bit of a continuation on some of those musical approaches, radioactivity was before that. And that was their first album. That was entirely electronic. And this was a concept album. And then Autobahn was the one before that. This is sort of their classic, you know, many credit this as the first true, you know, I guess, EDM electronic music, this idea of sort of techno repetitive electronics, sort of the uh, formal way to say it. Um, Most people credit, you know, Autobahn, particularly the long piece title track there. That album was mostly instrumental, with the exception of some vocoder stuff and and um, some vocal elements. But for the most part, instrumental.
1: Do you own or have you ever
0: checked out the albums that preceded Autobahn? So I was just going to say, you know, I, I wasn't planning to talk a lot about those, just because those are. It seems like those are the ones that really came before the development of their signature sound. You know, those are certainly more instrumentation driven they're really interesting I mean if you're going to study craftwork it's a it's an important piece of the story but you're not so much getting that that more signature you know innovative uh craftwork sound but what what do you think of the first three records there
1: they're really important you know when you look at get a little German soapbox here but um when you look at the beginnings of German music it's so important to remember that this is like the early nineteen seventies. And this is like very much post-war, right? And not that far removed from Germany, you know, experiencing and going through one of the darkest times in human history. And this is just not this time is not that far removed from national socialism and and all the things that, you know, led to World War Two and came out of World War Two. And Germany post war was was a disaster zone cities were in ruins, just you know, a tiny bit of history, but like the post-war agreements and sanctions on Germany were intense. I mean, Germany was basically in a place where they had to rebuild from scratch and didn't have a whole lot of resources to do that. So the early German modern music is some of the artists that I mentioned during the round and round. These were not like musicians. They didn't have chops. You know, they, they weren't like American kids sort of picking up guitars and jangling away and writing songs that the girls would scream about. This was like a full rebuilding of a culture, not just a music, but a a culture. Most of the popular music at the time was like German Schlager music, which was like, you know, pop music that you might see on TV. So these guys were all more experimenters than they were musicians. And those first few Kraftwerk albums just represent guys literally learning how to use machines. They weren't creating songs. It was not you know, made for radio. Take one, listen to it, you'll know what I mean. But they're really important records to see how these early German artists, and it wasn't just Kraftwerk, it was a whole variety of people, were sort of discovering this new way. And it, in Germany in the early 1970s, everyone was looking for something new because of all the darkness that they had just been through as a country and as a culture. Those early albums, are, it's like hearing these guys shape something from scratch, and then by the time you get to Audubon, there actually is something happening there. By the time you get to the man machine and computer world, it's kind of polished and and ready for the masses, you know? So yeah, those, those early albums are worth getting into. It's not the feel good hit of the summer now, you know, you're not going to like <laughs> listen to it and, and, uh, you know, thoroughly enjoy it, but you're going to probably appreciate it because of what they were trying to discover at the time and how that connects to the musical culture and just the cultural landscape of germany at this time.
0: Yeah, it's a little funny to to when people refer to Kraftwerk as a dance band because i i mean, you know, as we've mentioned before on the old podcast here, you and i are very busy dancers. I mean, we're very yes. good at it, you know, yes. very skilled in that area. Yes. Um I don't think I could really imagine like dancing it up to craft work, but it's kind of funny. If you look back, they made some appearances on like the midnight special. And I think they were on American bandstand maybe. Um, And in some other sort of television appearances, and you can see people like kind of trying to dance along to it. And it's always, it's always comes across kind of funny. Actually. I don't think they necessarily wanted people dancing to their music. It was more of an art piece, you know? But yeah, it's always kind of funny to think of this genre that they really pioneered, but I don't really necessarily think that their music was intended for that in the first place.
1: Well, it, I, 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 I will tell you, just in my, uh, in my conversation with Ralph, which I'm sure we'll get to in the Wonder Stories, it is important to note, though, Kraftwerk was heavily influenced and fascinated by dance music. Now, not necessarily early on in the era we're talking about, but as they went on, um, Detroit Techno was a huge deal to them. And and it's one of the things we talked about in the interview I did with them. I I do think they see themselves as part of that. But it's in this very icy German
0: way, right? Like, well, they were certainly part of it. I just, you know, dancing to Kraftwerk. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it happens. Maybe it's a thing. If
1: you dance like, you remember Sprockets on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, <laughs> if you're, if you course. dance like Dieter from Sprockets,
0: <laughs> Kraftwerk right. is perfect. Right, right. You know? Because now is the time on Sprockets when we dance. That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Well, the man machine, interestingly, was a was a pretty slow mover commercially. It was initially quite unsuccessful in the UK, which is interesting because it probably was the most commercial sounding effort that they had put forth. So it almost seems like it took Kraftwerk fans a little bit of time to sort of get used to it. But Interestingly enough, four years later, it reached number nine on the UK charts and and became their second highest charting album besides Autobahn. So, you know, a late bloomer, one that took literally a few years to find its way up the charts, but eventually did. It's first pressing, you're, you're you're the vinyl expert here, you'll have to let me know if this is unique or if this was common. But the first pressing was on red vinyl back in 1978. Was that common? No, that was very unique. Yeah, very unique. That was that would have been something
1: that was uh real novelty. I think that was that was the German release, right? Because the US release had to be was on Capital. That was Kraftwerk's US label. But yeah. I think, yeah, the official original German release was on Red Vinyl. Yeah, that would have been different. And I, I know too that, you know, with the the slow moving aspect of this album, a huge part of that was the model was released as a single years later it was re-released i think it was maybe 2 years later maybe even 3 mm-hmm. and that's what gave it
0: kind of its commercial in and then it you know became more beloved exactly and speaking of red you know the the cover art of this is pretty uh, is pretty iconic and pretty interesting you know the the group pose of the four guys and the background of this it actually says on the cover inspired by l lizitsky who is the very famous, very influential uh, Russian, I guess, avant-garde artist that that sort of came up with this genre called suprematism, uh, which was this sort of uniformed, geometric, often three-dimensional, very vivid color treatments, not surprisingly often red, And Lizitsky also helped with a little propaganda, some propaganda art projects uh, within his. uh, (laughs) Yeah, of of course. (laughs) Not surprisingly, most talented people were, were sort of looped into that, uh, that project at this time, but they were obviously very, um, you know, these guys were, were certainly artists from the standpoint of some of the themes they were trying to get across in their music and in their approach. Um, And obviously very influenced by a lot of this, I think their music and their approach is very uniformed and a lot of their themes hit on that. So not terribly surprising that that was an artist and an art form that influenced them enough to kind of utilize that approach on the cover to this. And and there are a lot of themes around, you know, almost kind of science fiction stuff related to, you know, machines and, and robots and, you know, kind of foreshadowing a lot of things that have been taking place uh very much so here you know 50-ish years later um as well as some themes around kind of urbanization and and glamour and some of these things that really hold up extremely well i mean a lot of the things that craft work tongue-in-cheek they did always have a really nice sense of humor and and sense of uh humility to a lot of the things they were saying but you can look back and actually take quite seriously a lot of the themes that they were putting out there, which which thematically hold up extremely well in 2020, which is which is fascinating and, and speaks to the intelligence of these guys. And and these guys, uh you know, diving into who they were just a little bit, Rolf Hooter was the main sort of keyboard contributor early on and, and eventually became kind of the main songwriter. His fellow co founder certainly was a heavy contributor to composition early, but as craft work went on, really starting around this time with Man Machine, Rolf really established himself as sort of the lead songwriter and, and composition contributor. He had a really bad, he was a huge cycling enthusiast, which kind of leads to the eventual Tour de France, you know, project that they did, which was great. But he had a really bad cycling accident in the early 80s and actually went into a brief coma. Um, so thankfully, he was able to recover and obviously kept, you know, the craftwork project going with some, with some long breaks in between um, up until this day. And he's still, you know, fairly active with things. His co-founder is Florian Schneider, who we unfortunately lost um, just this past April, actually. And um, he started as a flute player and said he got bored playing the flute and decided to kind of dig into electronics and synthesizers and other instrumentation as he wanted to sort of grow as an artist. Um, So really, Rolf and Florian are really the two guys. Um, He left the group actually in 2009. Um, We did get to see them on their reunion tour with Florian. You and I did in Detroit, which was fantastic. Um, And then unfortunately passed away um, earlier this year. Now you do have a couple other members uh, on the man machine and and guys that certainly contributed to the project with some longevity. And that's Carl Bartos, uh, who contributed keys, percussion, some songwriting and composition support, even had some songwriting credits for the group and then wolfgang Fleur, who mostly contributed percussion but those guys were with the band for for many years and certainly deserve to be incorporated into the overall sort of personnel uh within man machine
1: carl bartos is a actually a really good interview uh he's been part of some german music documentaries uh speaking about craft work and its significance and he's a uh, he's a nice contributor to those things but yeah i mean even from the b- very beginning Ralph and Florian are, are, sort of the guys, you know, and clearly the, the, the visionaries of the thing, you other know thing you gotta, you gotta mention too about Ralph. He's the vocalist, man. You know, Kraftwerk's vocals are like one of the greatest things in oh, music.
0: Yeah, no question. I mean, the, you know, the vocoder usage was something you really hadn't Heard I mean, I believe Kraftwork sort of introduced that, and that became very prevalent in in disco, you know some of that Giorgio Murder sound, um which we'll hear a little bit here on man Machine, but yeah, some cool vocal effects and elements that Rolf certainly you know contributed heavily, and it's so fun to see them live as they execute vocally i mean it's <laughs> it's really cool it's a short album, you know it's six tracks it's thirty six minutes. And Kraftwerk, you know, in their thoughtful, intelligent, sort of uniformed style, were always very efficient. You know, these guys, did, there wasn't a lot of fat that needed to be chewed off of things. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't have long pieces. That doesn't mean that they didn't explore at times experimentally. I mean, it's very few projects in the history of music have been as experimental as Kraftwerk, but they never overdid it for the sake of it. I, I think they were never indulgent. And they never added tracks or time for the sake of it. So a very efficient album, you know, very much to the point. That is directly tied to German
1: culture. Mm-hmm. Germany is all about efficiency. Even when you when you go there, you know, everything makes sense. If you look at Kraftwerk's music, as artistic as it is and as innovative as it is, everything about it makes sense. It, it everything's sort of squared off. The imagery is really you know rational and efficient and that's a direct result of being german artists at the time that they were german artists so it's a great call it's a good read i think that has everything to do with them being
0: german and a good point by you to tie that in and as usual you know the the record was released with both english and german versions the clips we're going to play today are from the german versions and that's part of the fun also of of revisiting kraftwerk's catalog is There is a distinct difference. Now, musically, there's not, but in the overall feel and vibe of the English versions versus the German versions, and it is a great time, especially when you're total nerds like us, but it is a great time, I think, to revisit both. And sometimes you're in the mood for the German version and the German albums and the German work, and sometimes you're in the mood for the English stuff. So it's part of the fun, I think, of kind of plowing through these uh, guys' deep catalog. So, why don't we plow through, and we're going to do this in English, uh, by the way, but why don't we plow through the wonder stories? I, uh, I know you've got a cool one, Nub, and uh, let's dig into it. All right, Nub laying on us. Uh, how did you discover, and certainly uh, in some cases, interact with this band? Yeah. So I wasn't like
1: 14 years old getting into craft work, right? <laughs> like I'm not going to mislead anybody. It, it took a while to understand this band. Now I think through pop culture though, you encounter it a little bit. Like earlier we mentioned Sprockets on Saturday Night Live. I don't know if that theme song is Kraftwerk, but it sure sounds like it. And some of the references and
0: things like I think, that. I think it is actually, I think it's something off of computer world maybe. Um, but it's that do 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 if it's not an exact Kraftwerk song, it sure as hell is it heavily inspired by them. It's yeah. almost, a, almost a parody song of it. Yeah, exactly. And so
1: th- this sort of like German culture that Kraftwerk helped build and lead certainly came through growing up. You saw it in various places, but it turns of like actually getting into Kraftwerk's music. That was not a thing until, you know, late in college and even post-college. So when I got into Kraftwerk, though, I became obsessively interested in them. I have to give our older brother Scott a shout because he, you know, he's always been like an electronic music guy. And I've always resisted a lot of electronic music because it's just so repetitive and boring and, you know, thoughtless in my opinion, but. Which Kraftwerk, much of it is. It is. It. But Kraftwerk, you know, I, I, I've quickly realized they make songs. And they have an image that is so tied to the music. And it just became obsessively interested in the band. I got all the albums in German and English and just really started diving into them. Well, by 2005, like it wasn't clear that Kraftwerk was going to like ever do anything again. You know, they did the Tour de France soundtracks and I think Mm -hmm. those were successful. But Mm -hmm. as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, I reviewed music for several years for a local newspaper
0: AKA best job ever.
1: Yeah. No question about it, particularly at, you know, 25 years old. (laughs) And part of my daily routine was to go and refresh Polestar, which was this thing online where you could find out what shows are coming in. (laughs) And it was big news that Kraftwerk was announcing a U.S. tour. And of course, you know, I was playing the Detroit State Theater. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is the greatest thing ever. Just thinking about going to the show, you know? And so totally on a whim. I got in touch with Astralworks Records, which at this time was their US label. And just, you know, part of my job was to pitch stories and try and get interviews. And dude, I didn't, I didn't even think Kraftwerk would do an interview.
0: I, I didn't even know if they even spoke to the public, you know? Well, they didn't for a I mean, you know, Rolf never did interviews. He purposefully, it was almost like a Neil Pert situation. He just did not enjoy it, didn't want to do it. And Florian very rarely you know, even in their heyday would do public appearances or interviews.
1: It was a true shot in the dark, but, but you know what, looking back, I had given this label a few good reviews in the year previous. And so I don't know if they felt like they owed me one or what, but I just, I, all I did was send a brief email pitch to saying, Hey, if there's any opportunity to cover work, I'd love to do it. And they wrote back and they're like, yeah, Ralph is available for an interview after the show on whatever day it was. It was Early summer, I think it was June or late May. And I'm just like, holy crap. I instantly became, yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah. I instantly became excited and like kind of nervous, you know. And part of when you review music and spend a lot of time with professional musicians, you you don't, you're not starstruck, right? Like you kind of see what it's all about. You become used to spending time with these people and you realize they're just people, they're amazing artists, but they're just human beings like all of us. But this one was different, you know. And so, Went to the show. The show was incredible. And then after the show was, was ushered upstairs to the dressing room area, and I'm sitting in this room and just in walks Ralph eating an apple. I just always remember that because <laughs> there was just something so pure about it. It was like, oh, he's just enjoying an apple after the show. And we talked for probably 35 minutes. I think, I think we were given 15 minutes and we just, I think the fact that we talked about some Detroit things and it was just an awesome conversation. He was the sweetest, most gracious, humble dude Mm -hmm. you've ever met. I mean, he was, he was so kind and so willing to talk about craft work. There was no hesitation, you know, to touch on any topics and it was far and away the highlight
0: of all the interviews that I was lucky enough to be able to do was the highlight. What a highlight. I, I, I saw them on that same tour. I was in New York city at the time at the Hammerstein ballroom. And, um, I did not get to hang out with Rolf after the show. So, (laughs) so
1: that's that. So T, you know, share with us, what's your Kraftwerk
0: wonder story? You know, I, I certainly don't have anything that cool. I, I also think of Scotty, our older brother who, uh, maybe we should try and have him on the old podcast here at some point you know scotty if you're listening and you're interested let's do it that'd be fun but you know sometimes uh scotty would get a little uh elitist musically (laughs) just just a tad maybe i hope he's not listening now but no um and and sometimes he would you know be like oh you like them they're just a version of x or y or z you know they're the real ones who start and i'd be like okay whatever scotty right but i remember you mentioned sprockets huge sprockets fan probably one of my favorite like snl you know sort of franchises ever and just a brilliant i mean mike myers just so many brilliant angles comedically on so many different cultural things and this poking fun at this you know german avant-garde thing was just just so hilarious um in the character deter just i mean so effing funny so i remember at some point talking about sprockets and i remember scotty even this is you know we were pretty young still i remember like saying something about the theme song to sprockets or the songs they used to play when they would dance you know because there was the trademark of the part on sprockets this is the part on sprockets when we dance and all that and i remember scotty being like. Uh, that's just really just craft work, you know, that's craft work music. You know, they're the ones that really kind of came up with that. And, And I was like, whenever this would happen, half of me would be like, all right, Scotty, whatever, shut up. But the other half of me would be like, he's probably onto something. I should probably check this out, you know? So, and Kraft were a perfect example of that is he started to get really into electronic music. He used to talk about them a lot. And I'm thankful that he did because it really did help me as well sort of dig into, um, the, the, the importance and the influence of this group. And it got to the point where I just, I wanted to have their entire catalog and I do, you know, both, uh, on, on vinyl and on CD, I have all those box sets that have all their studio albums in both English and German. And, you know, uh, like I said earlier, both are equally interesting to listen to at times. Sometimes it's hard to pick which, which one you're in the mood for, but you know, neither of them end up being a poor choice, but you know, and then obviously going to see them live in New York city on the tour that you talked about. And then we went a few years later in Detroit and saw them, um, while Florian was still part of the project, um, at the Masonic Temple Theater I believe so you know definitely some good experiences in in seeing them live and some even better experiences and really digging into the group and establishing a real appreciation for for what they meant to music let's get into it here let's drop the needle the needle on
1: the record the needle on the the needle on the, needle on the,
0: needle on the, needle on the when the beach So again, it, it was rather difficult to kind of figure out. There's so many great choices of a Kraftwerk album that, that we could focus on, but we have chosen the Man Machine, uh, six tracks, and kicks off with the extremely memorable. Uh, you could either call it D Robot Terror, or you can call it the Robots so obviously the german version here as you can hear but uh
1: it does sound a little bit like he's saying, we are stinky robots. I will say.
0: <laughs> well, maybe it was. and just maybe. playing a joke on all of us. But yeah. uh, we are the robots is obviously the main kind of theme of this. And, you know, you mentioned the model earlier. I think this is the other song that, you know, certainly was released as a single. That's, you know, a very memorable way to kind of start this out and, and certainly has become a Kraftwerk classic. Now. What's even more amazing about this as the the studio experience of the robots is the live experience of the robots, because, you know, part of the live presentation, whenever they perform this song is they kind of darken the stage. Sometimes they even bring out a curtain and take a a minute or two to sort of reset things and then once they light back up and begin the robots you notice that the band members the human band members have been replaced by full-on robotic band members um that are kind of programmed to move around uh while this song is is being performed in the background and it is just an incredible Part of a craftwork show, you know, just so cool and obviously fits the track extremely well, but you know a a great starter obviously to this record, and something that certainly is you know upbeat, very danceable um from the standpoint of kind of the the uh rhythm and the tempo that you're getting, um but an extremely memorable craftwork track here
1: it is, and uh but one of the questions I do is the sequencing. At the show, if you remember the two thousand and five show, which really was kind of the Man Machine show. I mean, all the imagery was geared around Man Machine. I, I think they played most of. The, I know they played most of the album. I don't know if they hit the two instrumentals. But mm-hmm. at the show, they opened with the Man Machine and they closed with the Robots. Mm. On the album, the Man machine's is a closing track, and the Robots opens it. And I was wondering right. what, what was. I, I wonder what the thinking was in that, because to me, the Man Machine is the The obvious opener on this album but they they had it as the closer so right the i think it's interesting what they did there but yeah the robots is a a very good live song for them and yeah it it gets into something you touched on earlier which is you know they're starting to really truly create pop songs you know songs with a certain amount of catchiness the robots neon lights the model these were all singles and uh you can see why because they contain that catchiness to them, but still with that very craftwork Germanic edge to it, and uh, yeah, it's it's a fun way to kick off this record for sure.
0: You're right about the track sequencing. It does seem like, now that I think about it, and now that you mention it, that Man Machine may have been kind of the more ideal opener. Um, but you know, it's it's great bookends nonetheless. However, you add it up, um, but yeah, on their live album that reflected. This particular tour, you know, the Man Machine certainly a uh, a memorable opener to that show and to that live disc. So then we get into with a little bit of the coder involved, you know, a mostly instrumental experience here, the very pulsing and very up tempo Space Lab. that vocoder you know just trademark craft work they always used it so well um such a such a cool sound and it's a nice mostly instrumental piece here coming off of the robots which was a bit more pop oriented and this one's a bit more um just sort of a chugging um sort of more repetitive electronic beat and approach that they're taking um, with some great elements laid over it
1: yeah i like this one i think it's that pulsating thing you know that kind of uh what what can't be underrated about Kraftwerk is just how clever they were with rhythms. You know, they would do things in different timings that would work kind of uh coherently together. And even though they were developing a sense of melody later in their career and certainly by this album, this album is very melodic. But Space Lives a good example of just that that kind of punchiness, you know, that that deep groove that's happening there. And uh yeah, it's it's one of my favorite uh songs on the album for sure. I like the little vocoder vocal. I think it's tasteful. I like that there's very few vocals in the song. And that's one of the things I think Craftwork was masterful at. You know, they, they worked the vocals in very well. It was yeah. always tasteful. It was never too much. And it was very infrequently too little. Um, it always seemed to be in that sweet spot. Come in at the right time, exit at the right time, and have the right treatments on it. So, yeah, Space Lab's a lot of fun.
0: And then we get into something clearly danceable for those that want to partake and certainly has a a sort of a a Moog feel to it here in Metropolis Track 3. Now, a lot of Giorgio Mortar type feel here with kind of the Moog influence. I I actually thought that maybe this preceded I Feel Love, which is that classic Donna Summer tune, but actually I Feel Love came out before this. So I think though it it works along the same kind of lines of this chugging approach that Became very popular with dance music, very popular with disco music around this time. And, you know, certainly Metropolis, I think a nice reflection of that era. Now, it's very craft work. It's not, you know, you're not going to hear this at the disco. As you got into the, the further development of New Wave and eventually of techno, that really became sort of based on this chugging repetition. And Metropolis captures that well.
1: This is one of the advantages of, of uh, the conversation I had with Ralph, which is we all think so much in terms of craft work as influencers. Right. And a lot of my conversation with him was leading with this whole idea of craft work as an influencer. Mm-hmm. He was much more comfortable and apt to talk about craft work as being influenced. Mm. And he talked a lot about, you know, Juan Atkins and Kevin Saunderson and, these Detroit techno founders. I mean, he was very well-versed and familiar with what was going on there. And that would be in line with what you're saying, which is that I think Kraftwerk was just as much influenced as they influenced others. And this is very Marauder. I mean, very much so you could throw this on one of his albums or have Donna Summer singing over it. And it would have, it would have been an easy sell. And so I think it's really important that sometimes we, we tend to overcook the idea of an influencer Having influence, but we forget the fact that they were likely very influenced themselves. Craftwork continued to grow. you know they didn 't just say oh we're influential, and that's all we're going to do." They listened, you know they had wide open ears to what was going on in music, certainly electronic music, and they allowed that to shape them and I think that metropolis
0: you know really reflects that it's a really, really good point, and I think it's probably something that Rolf would appreciate you saying you know sometimes. I think you're right. Some of the, you know, these pioneers, um, which is very deserved in many regards with these guys, obviously. But sometimes that gets overcooked to the point where you forget that these are artists that are influenced themselves and interested themselves in in kind of what's going on out there and how it can impact their art. Um, So a great point that I'm sure nobody would appreciate you noting uh, more than than uh, the band themselves and Rolf himself. Let's get on to a very memorable piece of this record and certainly uh, to your earlier point, Nubs, uh, the single that sort of gave this album its commercial life, which was slow developing, but eventually got there. This is Das Model, or as we'd say it here, The Model. Ich muss sie
1: ich lasse, sie,
0: a half minutes long. I mean this is this is a tight number, you know, this is this is a this is a true album cut here. Uh, And one that was certainly developed to be a single, became a single, uh became a craft work favorite, and it's just a hell of a song. You know, I I I, um often gauge a lot of this these this type of classic music by you know playing it for my son. And a couple years ago when he was like five years old he loved the model, you know, he used to ask for me to play it all the time. And so it even passed the, uh, the five-year-old test, which can be an interesting test on, uh, unique, uh, music and and classic music of this type, but you know, the model, obviously a a great part uh, of the man machine.
1: I love the vocals. I just love the voice oh, like, yeah. live, you it's know, and where Ralph like puts the hand up to the ear. And, yeah,
0: I mean, right, right.
1: The thing I love about it is it's like, it's super authentic. And Ralph Hooter is not like, he's not going to sing opera, you know, like, I mean, this is not like a singer, but he's using his voice as this sort of robotic instrument to complement the song. And, and I think what's cool is that they often masked their voice with vocoders and treatments and all these things. Well, this is just like Ralph's voice straight up you know, and it just works so well. It's such a deadpan kind of like understated element to the song. You got to remember that this came out at a time where like radio is playing like Steve Perry journey, you know, like <laughs> vocals were like the forefront frontman, the whole shot, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Ralph comes along with this just really humble, like understated vocal. It's just using his voice as an instrument. It's just super craft work, you know? And, I love that the voice is a little shaky. I just think it's so human, you know, (laughs) and taking that's one thing about Kraftwerk is like everything they did was so mechanical and and robotic, no pun intended, but there's a humanness to the model. Yeah, I think that speaks into what the song is about, you know, and so um, it's probably their most human song, which made it an obvious single and one that was You're really important and really successful for the group
0: yeah i mean we we could like literally do an acoustic version of the model you know oh dude we should that's a (laughs) great but to your point human element um you know it's certainly there and uh yeah after we get done recording here why don't we come up with a little bit of an arrangement there now here's one that we probably couldn't and probably shouldn't try an acoustic version of this is neon licked otherwise known as neon lights It's just so badass. It's it's actually hard to turn off. Um, I just want to sit here and keep listening yeah, to it. totally. But um, just love that understated minimalist backbeat. You know, it's just so cool. It's just so cool and so simple. And Kraftwerk always had this really incredible knack for being able to take a lot of sometimes swirling complicated elements and just put them over the simplest foundation or the simplest backbeat that you could ever think of and neon lights a great example of that now this is a long piece this is you know 9 minutes long which is you know pretty much by quite a bit the longest track on the album and you know what's really cool about it it's it's a couple of verses and then it just kind of enters this i guess for lack of a better word it's a jam you know, if, if there was a such thing as a, a, you know, an electronic jam band, the last few minutes of neon lights is really just that. I mean, these guys are just kind of going after it. So it almost feels like if, uh, if Kraftwerk, uh was playing at a fish show, you know, that they spent uh, five or six minutes here on neon lights, just kind of playing it out. And, uh, and that's part of the That's part of the charm of it, and part of what I really love about this this longer piece here.
1: It's easily my favorite part of this album, easily. Mm -hmm. And so much of it is that that jam at the end. And you played the right clip, Maestro. You always do. But that do 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 do. I mean, what what a groove, you know? And this is really to me where the groove locks in. This is where earlier we kind of speculated, you know, were were they into dance? Were they not into dance? Were they, you know, could you dance to it? This song. That last couple minutes of it is, is so clearly them having fun with the groove. But again, I think the vocals, you know, just neon lights, you know, it's, it's just so good. It's so good. You know, like, and. Uh,
0: I can, that was pretty good. I kind of want to hear you drop a little, um, I don't know, get. Can you maybe drop a little Kraftwerk vocal for me? Uh, why don't, maybe if I can, let's see, what's it i give it a shot. What what Kraftwerk karaoke could have, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe a little Autobahn here, let's see.
1: Go ahead, drop it. Fun, 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 after Autobahn. <laughs> fun, 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 after Autobahn. <laughs> for earthly time to Get your shot, die Farben schnee. And gone to Bond with Mr. Shot. a Run J Strattenweir. Oh, did you like that? Boy, I'm
0: glad we did that. <clears throat> <laughs> that was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I think Verschhan weir was my <laughs> was my favorite uh,
1: part. That was a good one.
0: I, I I'm not even gonna do it. I can't, I can't. There's no way I top that. There's just no way, so I'm not even gonna try. Um <laughs> I know what I'm doing next time we go karaoke, buddy. Oh yeah, that'll that'll really bring the house down. Hopefully they have the full 25-minute version. <laughs> Let's wrap it up with title track Dementch Machine or The Man Machine. Like you said, on neon lights, just a fantastic groove. I mean, the the last two tracks of this record just really are, again, no pun intended, just a groove machine. I mean, really getting after it. A great main lick, a great groove. This has been sampled a bunch. You know, a lot of rap artists and witchcraft work has certainly been sampled. Uh, I mean, how Coldplay even basically stole a song from them and forgot to credit them and had to eventually. So, you know, um, you've seen a lot of that influence on composition and certainly influence on sampling. And, and, uh, you've seen that from the man machine, but great way to wrap this up. It's I do like this version. I will say that the kind of rework they did of it
1: for the 2005 tour, which is captured on that. I think it's called minimum maximum. Yes. The live album is much better. Um, they brought out some of the, the, the vocal a little bit more, they, they create a little bit more of a song structure and made it make a little more sense than it does on the album. The key is the, the deep groove, like you said, you know, two, two, car, two, two, you know, and then on top of it, you got that. I think the underrated part of the song is that, uh, that synth pulse that's just doing that. I mean, it kind of goes through the whole song. Again, rhythmically, there's just, there's just so much going on. You know, there's so much going on but it all works together in this puzzle, you know, and yeah. the man machine is a good example of that. It's it, I, it. Again, I think it would have been the ideal opener of the album, but
0: obviously winds it down
1: to a pretty memorable close.
0: Yeah. And at least they didn't end up with a slouch opening the record. I mean, the robots, you know, kind of handles it pretty nicely, but you're right. It's a great way to put it. Craftwork was able to take a lot of differing elements and kind of piece them together and make it all work. And again, very systematic, very uniformed, very efficient, as we've uh, as we've touched on in, in that sort of tie-in to just overall German culture. And certainly while this album put them in a, a pretty good commercial position and certainly was meant, I think, to be absorbed by a more mainstream audience, you've still got the experimentation. You've still got that blend of simplicity and complication that made Kraftwerk so special. And that uh, and that wraps up the man machine. So, Nobs, did the man machine matter? Here's what I'll tell you: craftwork
1: totally matters. I mean, of of all of the artists that we've covered on the podcast, this is maybe the one that matters the most. If you really think about it, you know, w- will people be rediscovering craftwork in ten years, thirty years, fifty years? I hope so, and I think so. I do too. So Kraftwerk completely matters. And this album is, is one of their most important, you know, I, I, you and I had a conversation in, a few days ago about you know, what is your favorite Kraftwerk album? And I think for me, it, it's either this or Computer World, both of which I think are their most influential albums as well. I mean, I know Trans Europe Express has some moments and, I mean, they all do, right? Autobahn, of course. yeah. But this album if you're taking a group that so clearly matters and will matter for a very long time to come and an album that captures probably the group at its overall best, when you look at all the things that went into Kraftwerk being, you know, as legendary as they were and hopefully will continue to be then. Yeah. I mean, you you just got to say whether the album matters or not Kraftwerk totally matters and that's pretty undisputable. What do you think T?
0: Yeah. You know, I think it certainly mattered a lot to the, to the group and, and certainly matters as far as its influence. I think it mattered to the group because you started to see a little bit of this formulation of, of singles and tighter tracks on the previous album, but man machine sort of culminated a lot of the experimentation with something that could be commercial with something that showed both a couple of kind of longer, more experimental tunes with a couple of tighter singles, it, it feels to me like them taking all that they had really kind of learned in their first six albums and pulling it into something that's to the point, that's very efficient and covers a lot of bases. You know, Computer World is great. Um, that's even, I think, further commercial and even kind of further went along the lines of some of the trends that you were seeing even a couple of years later. But I don't think synth pop is what it is without the man machine I don't think sort of new wave and what you started to see come around in the early 80s is what it is without man machine and and I don't think computer world is the album that it was without man machine sort of preceding it um, and kind of establishing this direction because I do think it was a little bit of a pivot point for the band in kind of taking them in a um, direction that they really hadn't fully kind of dove into previously. So yeah, I think this one matters a lot, both for the longevity of the band and for kind of its impact on this evolution of electronic and techno and dance music going forward. All right, well let's do the final cut. Is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it in the first sale bin? what do you got? a
1: yeah, you put craftwork in the for sale bin and bad things are going to happen to you. Yeah, I, that's a bad
0: omen, I think.
1: Yeah, that's not a good move. So, you know, two weeks ago, this album would have been collecting dust. But now I'm just going to upgrade it to in the collection. Mm. So it took a little bit of rediscovery. So, you know, full transparency, as we always are with our audience, we're transparent people, right? I wasn't listening to this frequently. And it had been a while since I listened to all six tracks in sequence. Now that I did, I think it'll make you know more regular rotations. But like we touched on earlier, it's in the collection because everyone should own this. Everyone should own a Kraftwerk album. If that's not like federal law, let's make it one, right? And if you're going to, you know, there's not that many choices, and this probably is the one. So in the collection for me, but that's an upgrade from uh, again. T your eyes bring in the good ideas to the table, right, with the podcast, so you're able to. you know, re inspire me to take this out of the plastic and play it again. And, and that uh, it's led to an upgrade. So we're going from collecting dust to in the collection, what is it for you, T?
0: I'm going to put it on the turntable because I, I think it's the definitive Kraftwerk album. As you get later in their catalog, um, things do get pretty heavily melodic and heavily commercial. And that's great. I mean, I love that stuff. If you proceed Man Machine, it it was a little bit more crowdy, a little bit more uh experimental, and some of those things, and I feel like this was the middle point where they kind of brought it together. so if you sort of book in their career and move toward the middle, I think man machine is the one that really captures the band in its complete essence. I like that it's tight, I like that it's a thirty six minute listen you don't have to take half a day to sort of dig into it and get through it. The singles are great. The shorter songs, you know, with the the robots and, and the model, I mean, those are very memorable craftwork tunes. But then you get into Neon Lights and uh, Metropolis. And I mean, these, these these are just very creative, very creative. And to your point, I think you made a good one. The band having a good time. You can hear the group kind of having fun in a lot of different points of this record. You can tell it's very authentic. There's an effort to be a little bit commercial and a little bit mainstream, but it's not overdone. There's an effort to kind of stick to their original roots, but that's not overdone. I just think it's a very balanced craft work record and one that is not a terribly difficult choice for me. If you had to pick one out of their entire catalog, I'm, I'm going with the Man Machine. All right. Well, uh, what, what, a, what a cool, unique uh, group and record to kind of plow through here. Why don't we cool it down a little bit here as we tap into our pal Dolores here with a little.
1: Head, no, what do you got? Let's just go ahead and kick off in your head for me with uh, a little tune called pretty vacant. Oh, okay. Coming off an album called Never Mind the bullocks by of course the sex pistols. Great
0: jam. Great. Jam.
1: Oh, the opening. So, yeah,
0: good. Yeah. So
1: good. Uh, Next, actually, an opening track, a song by a kind of lesser-known band from the 2000s called The Juliana Theory, and it's uh, this is a love song for the loveless. Hmm. That's an opening from an album called Deadbeat Sweetheart, one of those should-have-been, could-have-been bands and should-have-been, could-have-been albums, but a killer jam. And then a good 80s song, uh, the Thompson Twins with Lay Your Hands On Me. Yeah. Thompson Twins with two or three of the... Oh, the better songs of the 80s hold me down you know oh yeah they're lay, great lay your hands on me i think is.
0: i mean doctor doctor's a hell of a song yeah they, it's they, really good. They, uh, they were really really good i mean i think it was just that one album that captured most of those hits but uh yeah they were they were a great group and probably wouldn't sound that way without Kraftwerk, right so they're indeed go. indeed see what is in your head well you know i kind of made fun of you for uh going in the uh you know sort of uh episode genre direction and on the uh round and round, but you know I kind of did the same thing here on in your head, I must say, so I'm gonna start off with Gary Newman, I know a favorite of yours, and this is his song Respect, which was kind of a little bit later era newman, uh but the live version off of his uh, skin mechanic uh live record, I think is one of his uh best live tracks total total jam real driving song there from newman and, and one that uh certainly one of my newman favorites
1: speaking of other guys that i met and interviewed awesome interview gary yeah. newman what a perspective he has on his own career you okay know, now just, you're just now you're just
0: rubbing it in okay yeah, shut, yeah. shut the hell up all right I, we get it okay <laughs> all, right, all right all right no that's cool um the second is a erasure And uh, this is Hollowed Ground, which is off the Innocence. It's a a little bit of an album cut for them, but a definite favorite uh, by many, you know, uh, big Eurasia fans, of which I am certainly one. Um, So, Hollowed Ground, a great tune by those guys. And then the third, uh, another band that was uh, part of this synth pop scene that was had to be heavily influenced by Kraftwerk and that's Depeche Mode. This is the song Strange Love. Uh it's you know a bit of a dark song, a, a clear celebration of masochism. Uh but you know uh, very catchy, upbeat, great tune. I, I think this is one of those um very uh you know kind of part of this new wave synth era uh that captured it well. Some very cool layers and elements on Strange Love. Um, also obviously part of a great album from Depeche Mode, who I'm also a large fan of. All right, Nub. well, Hey, that's a wrap on uh, episode 21 here. A lot of fun talking about these German fellas with you.
1: Yeah. hopefully, uh, some people listening go and and, uh, I don't know, maybe purchase. Do people still purchase music? I don't know, you know, but go out and check it out. I was actually surprised to see Kraftwerk's catalog is on like Amazon music and stuff. That just didn't seem right to me but it is on there. So people should should check it out for sure.
0: It sure is. Check it out, both the English and German versions and check us out as well. Uh, we're tweeting, we're tweeting away at uh, the number two underscore twins underscore album. So follow us, let us know if there's an album you'd like for us to talk about. We'd be more than happy to take those requests. And we've actually done a couple episode requests and uh, listen aside from that, just, just stay safe out there and be good to each other. All right, I think we can all agree to that. And we will see you for episode 22 as we hit you up next time here on Two Twins and an album. Two Twins
1: album. Well that's about it. That's all we have.
0: I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.